comes jumping off my Chinese house. Two ducks in my spyglass, furry as a mouse. It's a sweet nature, a sweet nature thing. It's a sweet nature, a sweet nature thing. It's a mighty fine, a mighty fine nature thing. It's a mighty fine. Welcome to Yarns at Yin Hu, a podcast about the fiber arts and other post-apocalyptic skills. Episode 184, Deep in November, Sunday, November 19th, 2017. I'm your host, Sarah. You can find me on social media as Sarah Pomegranate. The Yarns at Yenhu podcast has a Facebook page, and it's available on iTunes. Each week, I post photographs, show notes, and links to things I talk about on my website, yarnsatyenhu.com. Today's episode features the following segments, the back porch, the front porch, ever-expanding skill set, fiber friends, and so forth. Hello, everyone, and welcome. I hope you are well. I hope you are working on your post-apocalyptic skill set. This weekend has been really raw very windy. It's very, very gusty and windy right now. And Friday and Saturday saw just a really cold and dreary rain cover the landscape. Everything's looking very dull and gray. And I feel like I just need to keep knitting. (laughs) And that's what I've been doing. So I have a number of finished objects Before I get to the fibery ones, I just want to give a little bit of an update on the hashtag EmbroiderMoreStitchAlong. Are you stitching along? Are you working on a project? Are you posting a photograph on Instagram or in the thread on Ravelry? I hope you do. I'd love to see what you're working on. I completed an embroidered necklace. This is an idea from Rebecca Rinquist's embroidery book, where you take a scrap of fabric, embroider it. She layered the embroidery quite a bit. I layered the embroidery a little bit. I put fusible interfacing on the back of the fabric so that I could stitch through it without pulling on the fabric. And then I cut a narrow rectangle and I rolled the rectangle around a piece of leather cording and then I secured it with some of my core spun wire. I put some little end caps on so that the you know raggedy frazzled ends of the fabric that I was embroidering wouldn't be visible. And then I used some jewelry findings to make that cord into a necklace. 
I will put some photographs of this finished product on my website in case you're kind of scratching your head wondering what this would look like. Essentially, it's an embroidered tube of fabric with metal end caps and then a leather cord for a necklace. Mine is rather long. If I did it again, I wouldn't make it quite so long. I always overestimate the length it takes to go around my neck. I've done that quite a few times and I always think things need to be longer than they really do. And so I completed this necklace and I've worn it a couple of times this week already. It's extremely comfortable and because the embroidery stitches are in many different colors, it goes with a lot of different things that are in my wardrobe. So that's highly recommended. It's not a huge investment of time and it can be very freeform. I think it would be fun even to add beads or sequins to this embroidered fabric. You could start with something that has a print on it or maybe even start with a scrap of embroidery. That's one thing Rebecca Rinquist writes about in her book and in her many, many videos on Creative Bug. She talks about starting with vintage pieces of embroidery and then layering your own work on top, which is really kind of a fascinating practice. So I hope you're embroidering along. This stitch along concludes at the end of November, and then I will be awarding some prizes during my first podcast episode in December. So get your entries up by using hashtag embroidermore on Instagram or by posting to the appropriate thread with a photograph on Ravelry. And I look forward to seeing your work. The Back Porch. I have three completed projects to talk to you about today. The first is Clark Socks. It's a sock design by Jacqueline Salem. Jacqueline gave me this pattern and I also used yarn that was a gift from her to knit the pattern. It is my first and only Miss Babs yarn. It's in an old SSK colorway called Center Stage. It has reds, pinks, oranges. It's very autumnal. And I really enjoyed knitting Jacqueline's pattern. I took a few liberties with the foot of the sock. I did my first ever eye of partridge heel. And then I extended that into my favorite double gusset on the bottom of the foot with some ribbing along the arch just on the underside. And I was a little concerned about how much fabric that cable, there's a really luscious cable down the front of the sock. It was eating up a considerable amount of the fabric of the sock and it, w- it grew a little bit tight. So what I did also thinking about putting my foot into a shoe and having that cable is that I just let the cable trail off around the ankle area and then I continued with the foot of the sock. I really enjoyed knitting the cable and especially the darling little cable on the back, the center back of the sock. 
These were a lot of fun to knit, super comfortable, and though I am giving quite a few pairs of socks as gifts, I am keeping this pair. And even thinking about how that design might transfer to a mitten, I think there are a lot of possibilities for Jacqueline's clever pattern writing. The second thing I completed was something I hadn't even begun when I recorded my last podcast episode, and that is a gift of seeded mitts. It's a pattern by Heidi Bugelman. It's a free pattern on Ravelry, and I was introduced to these mitts when I saw them on display at a little yarn shop near where my mom lives in Frenchtown, New Jersey, the spinnery. They were on display and my mom tried them on and she liked them a lot. And so right then and there, I just, I bought the yarn for them and I wrote down the name of the pattern thinking that I would make them for her for a holiday gift. This was right after Christmas last year. So I don't think that she will remember having loved these mitts. The yarn they were knit in in the shop sample was Juniper Moon Farm Tenzing, which is a merino yak blend. It's very luxurious. I'm not sure how hard wearing it will be, but it's wonderfully soft and luxurious. The mitts are knit on a U.S. size 3 needle, and they're wonderfully stretchy and, and dense. They feel very nice. They have as the name suggests, bands of seed stitch around the wrist and around the fingers, the thumb, and then a little bit of a band up the side where you can, it's the perfect place to put some vintage buttons, non-functional buttons. And so I found some really beautiful buttons in my great-grandmother's button box, which was my legacy passed on to me when my grandmother passed. And so I've added these buttons to the cuffs on my mom's mitts. So these are done and dusted. Another gift for my Christmas gift box. And very happy to have those complete. They were a lot of fun to knit and they went very quickly. So I would recommend this pattern, Seeded Mitts by Heidi Buchelman for a gift knit if you are still searching for one of those patterns. Finally, I finished, yesterday I finished all of the knitting on my Jasmine tee. A beautiful top by Amanda Bell and I took many modifications to this pattern as I was knitting it because it seems like the top as written is extremely oversized. Taking those modifications meant that it took me a very long time to work my way through this pattern and I kept adjusting needle sizes and in the end I finished all of that lace at the top on a size one and a half needle. It took forever. I thought I would finish on Friday night. It took me a big chunk of the day Saturday to do it as well. But it fits beautifully. 
The lace is absolutely gorgeous. So I'll just say just a few words about this top overall. It's Jasmine Tea by Amanda Bell. It is a short sleeve or sleeveless top, depending on how you look at it, with two colors and two different types of yarn. So the body is knit in a fingering weight and it has a ribbed waistband and then I did some shaping on the way up. And then just about the time when you split the front and the back to knit the the yoke, it's in two pieces, so you knit the front and you knit the back, that shifts to a smaller needle size, shifts to uh, a much finer yarn and has a lace patterning, whereas the body is in stockinette. The yarns I used for this project are absolutely gorgeous, and they were gifts from Claire of New Hampshire Knits. For the body, I used John Arbon Alpaca 2-3 ply. It's this beautiful, just soft, glorious alpaca. I held it double and I knit in a rather fine gauge to keep its integrity, and that's a beautiful Merlot color. And then for the lace at the top, I used a John Arbon Wensleydale. It's it's like a finger, very light fingering or lace weight. I knit it on very small, U.S. size one and a half needles. The lace pattern is simple but really beautiful. And then the top closes so you have it separated for the front and the back and then you further separate to bind off the neckline and then knit each shoulder up to the top. And then there are a whole bunch of directions for different ways you could close it, but I just did a three needle bind off at the shoulder seam. And I knit it so that the front scoops a little bit and the back comes up a little bit higher and doesn't have as much of a as much depth to the neckline. There is a lot of finishing, weaving in ends, sort of fixing mistakes and pulling things in a little bit with the tails of my yarn, but I'm very pleased that the knitting is complete. And that was a top that I began in the summer tops make along, but then decided to set aside and finish because I think it will be a perfect thing for the holidays. I think it will look really beautiful with black pants and a black suit jacket. It will be really classy for a holiday party. My friends, this means I have nothing on my needles. I am down to zero in terms of knitting projects. Isn't that wild? It's, I can't remember the last time I had nothing on the needles. And I'm wondering if I should also, just before I put anything on my needles to finish a weaving project that I thought I would complete this summer, I don't know. Just not sure, but it's sort of a tantalizing prospect to think about what's on the front porch and what I will knit next. I think I may attempt one more quick gift knit 
before December begins, I have some really sumptuous, I think it's also juniper moon. Samuel picked out some really soft, sumptuous, of course, jet black yarn for the bandana cowl, which is a pearl Soho pattern. I've knit it before. It's very quick. I think he will get a lot of wear out of this cowl if I complete it. So I, that may be the next thing on my needles, but maybe I'll try to finish that weaving project before I get started on more knitting. Ever expanding skill set. Since my last recording, I have learned the differences between baking and roasting, which I have used interchangeably, but I have learned should not necessarily be used interchangeably. This is thanks to a little bit of an alert from Nancy Northern Flicker on Ravelry. I think I was mentioning baking sweet potato fries, and she asked about roasting. So I looked it up and I found that there are four main differences or four considerations when you're trying to determine are you roasting something or are you baking something, even though we may use those terms interchangeably. So number one is the structure of the food. When you roast something, you are putting a solid, stable structured food into an oven, like a turkey or vegetables. They're already in a substantial form. Baking is usually a term that's reserved for putting a mixture of ingredients into the oven that does not have a stable structure, like a cake batter. And then it has a stable structure after the cooking process is complete. So you roast a turkey, you bake a cake. You roast vegetables, you bake muffins and cookies. The second consideration is temperature. Baking typically occurs at lower oven temperatures than roasting, but baking occurs at higher oven temperatures than braising. So when I was braising the pork shoulder, that was at a 225 and you could even go down to 180. Baking is usually 350 to 375, somewhere in there. Roasting is typically a term used for oven temperatures over 400 degrees. And that something that high would burn or destroy a lot of the ingredients, the unstable ingredients in a batter, like for a cake. A third consideration is fat. Fat is usually incorporated into a batter for baking, but fat is usually employed as a coating for foods that are going to be roasted. And that gives it that crispy, browned, kind of caramelized outer texture that we like so much. And finally, is the pan covered or uncovered? Baking and roasting can happen uncovered, but roasting is, you don't cover something that you're going to roast. You leave that uncovered so that that browning can happen and the fat on the outside of the 
um, food can really give it that crispiness. Baking and roasting. That means that what I wanted to accomplish with sweet potato fries in the oven is roasting because they're stable structure. I'm using a very high oven temperature. I am coating them with fat and they are left uncovered. I had a beautiful tutorial and recipe that I found on a beautiful mess. And I just didn't think to look it up and follow the directions. Like I thought, I've got this. And my fries came out, first attempt of sweet potato fries, they came out okay. Uh, We ate them all, but I think I could make a few improvements when I try them again. I'm not sure why, but a beautiful mess suggests soaking the cut fries in water before baking. And I don't think it says why. So I don't know if I will do that or not, but I used cornstarch as a coating. I think I will keep that method. I also used a spray oil so that I could really reduce the amount of oil I was using on the fries. It allowed me to spray a light, even coat turn them over and then spray again before putting them into the oven. Things I will change include cutting the fries with just a greater eye for consistency. I was very sloppy. I'm used to rough cutting vegetables. I know it said to cut them evenly and then I really didn't do that. So I will spend more time and attention cutting even fries next time. And I will also let the fries go longer in the oven at a little bit higher temperature. I tried 425. I think I may go to 450. And I will let them go a little bit longer before flipping them because I was a little, this is such Oh, this is such a rookie move. I was so eager to flip them that I flipped them too early and some of the coating was left on the foil because I didn't wait until the coating and the sear had really completed before flipping them. It's so much easier to flip them when you do that. Rookie move. Anyway, they were delicious. They were somewhat crispy on the outside and tender on the inside. They held their structure. They were not floppy or gummy. And I made an incredible dipping sauce. I used three tablespoons of low-fat plain yogurt, one tablespoon of mayonnaise. I don't like dipping fries in mayonnaise, but I wanted to give a little smoother mouthfeel and a higher fat content to this dipping sauce. If I had had full-fat yogurt, I probably wouldn't have added the mayonnaise, but I just needed something to give it a little more structure. So three tablespoons yogurt, one tablespoon mayonnaise, a little bit of grated lemon rind, and just a few drops of lemon juice because I didn't want to thin this mixture. I wanted my dipping sauce to be nice and thick. So the grated lemon lemon rind is a good bet for that a little bit of salt, and then za'atar, 
which is a Middle Eastern spice blend. There are quite a few different varieties. The one I have is one of the several that are from Calustians in New York City. And it has, uh, I think the consistent features of a za'atar are sumac and sesame seeds, ground sesame seeds. And then it can have salt, pepper, other flavorings. It's kind of a warm and bright. It's warm and bright at the same time, which is unusual for a spice blend. I stirred a few teaspoons of that mixture into my dipping sauce, and it was absolutely delicious. So I will continue with my quest for the perfect sweet potato fry. I have some really wonderful sweet potatoes from my mom's garden, so I will give that a whirl. And I think I will also be trying some kind of potato gratin for Thanksgiving, incorporating several different kinds of potatoes. I think it will look beautiful and be really tasty. So I don't know if I'll find a recipe for that or go it on my own, but the quest continues. Last weekend, I was able to meet up with some fiber and podcaster friends for a little retreat in the Catskills. It was very difficult to pull together four very busy women's schedules, but we managed to find a time, some common time that we could all make the trek to be together, even though we are from very different places. So I met up with Sarah of Fiber Track, Claire of New Hampshire Knits, and Emily of the Fiber Town podcast, uh, my fleece-wise companions. And we had a few days together in a very rustic, cozy cabin in the Catskills, full of knitting and conversation and eating well and enjoying one, one another's company. It was a great restorative and hopefully it will become a tradition because I'm already looking forward to getting together with them again. We had such a fun-filled time together that I had to think carefully about what exactly I could share that wasn't just a list of everything we did. So I thought I would talk a little bit about how being at that retreat jump-started me on some other making that I want to do. One of the first things that happened is that Emily taught me how to use a supported spindle. She brought a selection of her own spindles for me to try and fiber. And I had a really good time working through the different spindles she had, trying them out. And Emily's such a great teacher because she's super hands-off and she's a great observer. And she just watched what I was doing and just kept telling me, try this, do this. And I would just make some subtle shifts in what I was doing. And I saw pretty amazing results, I think, for a beginner. It's really relaxing 
supported spindle spinning. The spindle shape and the operation, the, the comfort of using it is very different from a suspended spindle. And I like it. I have borrowed one of her beautiful Spanish peacock spindles. And then yesterday I went shopping at a, a redware event near my home. And the potter there had these beautiful little dishes and it's such a smooth surface and at first I thought oh that would be so cute to have stitch markers in on the table next to me and then I thought no that is perfect for supported spindling so I bought one of those dishes and yesterday I started on a new batch of fiber and I just keep working my way along until I decide on a supported spindle of my own. Sarah treated us to all of the materials to make a Sami bracelet. The Sami people are indigenous Finns from Lapland. They're a nomadic people, and I've learned a little bit about them from watching Sarah on her podcast talk about making these Sami bracelets and developing some techniques that kind of bring their work into the contemporary era. Also very useful in this process is the tutorial series that Disa created. And I was using a combination of Sarah's expertise and Disa's videos to complete this bracelet. The bracelet is woven tin wrapped thread that is sewn down on a strip of leather and then it's fastened around the wrist with an antler button. So I began this process at the retreat and then completed it at home on my own and I'm pretty pleased with the result. Sarah is a very patient teacher and she had a lot of expertise from like the trial and error that she had experienced in making several of these. And Rob, her husband, is very skilled with leather work and other kinds of handwork. So he had passed along some of his suggestions as well. And I kept Rob's words in mind when I was working on my piece. So thank you, Rob, and thank you, Sarah. And I have a beautiful... Sami bracelet. It's super comfortable. It's just really warm. It fits perfectly around my wrist. It feels secure. And the way the tin wrapped thread shines, it's kind of matte, but multifaceted at the same time. It's very pleasing, very pleasing design. And I did one of the more complicated kind of braiding that took me a while to get, but in the end, it, it grew a lot easier and I'm pretty pleased with the results. Another aspect of this retreat that is kind of living on with me is the beautiful set of patterns in making stories woods 
that was a lovely gift from Claire of New Hampshire Knits. It really honors the tradition of using beautiful wool and making something warm and substantial. This is the kind of magazine you can just kind of sink yourself into. And Claire was so generous in treating us to that. And also this beautiful spool of Uist wool that she collected on her travels this summer. I know she's talked about her journey on the podcast, but it was great to hear some other anecdotes and stories about her travels and the people she met, the landscape, connecting with makers and thinking about products. And of course, her shop, The Woolly Thistle, is is my main source for some of these things. And um, it was really great to have a chance to think through some possible future makes. All three of these women have beautiful, warm, hand-knit sweaters. I have focused on garment making, but I don't have warm, woolly, hand-knit sweaters. And I was envious. I got to see all of theirs, though. Three that really struck me were Claire was wearing her Sea Change by Jen Steingast. It's absolutely stunning. That one is on my list. So is Sarah's uh, Baby Cables and Big Ones too by Suvi Samola. This is something she's knit a while ago, and I've seen her wearing it on her podcast many times. But just to see it in person, to see these sweaters and see the ease with which they are worn, it's really great. And then uh, another one that really struck me was Emily's Lovage. Marie Wallace, it features a lot of color work. I tried it on. I want to knit this. It will just take me a while to think about the colors I will use. And Emily did a lot of sophisticated moves like knitting it top down instead of bottom up and reversing the patterning. And she did a lot of advanced things. So I have to think about if I will follow in her footsteps or maybe just knit the pattern as written. But I'm pretty sure my next woolly thistle order will be for yarn and colors for that particular sweater. I just have to do a lot of thinking about the colors. A chance to spend time with other makers and people who share your values is so important and I think a little can go a long way in terms of having some conversations and asking questions really listening for the answers that can sustain you for a while afterwards meeting up at fiber festivals and seeing acquaintances or exchanging hellos is great it feels good to feel like you're a part of a community But I think deeper conversations and really sharing stories and making memories together 
is also an important ingredient. So if you can do it, seize that opportunity. And so forth. I don't have any new sewing projects to report, but yesterday I organized my fabric stash. I don't know what took me so long. I've been wanting to do it for a while. And then, I think, I don't know, maybe it was during the summer, my friend Allison mentioned her method for organizing fabric stash. And I kept it in my mind that, oh, that would really work for me. And yesterday I learned, after posting about it on Instagram, I learned that Allison got the idea from Christine Haynes. I keep a lot of my stash on bookshelves. They were designed for books. They're not very deep, but they're built in and they are the space that I have. And I like things to be put away, but where I can see them because using bins just means I forget about what I have. So while it may be convenient to you know, put a fleece or to put prepared fiber under my bed until I'm ready to spin with it, I don't want to keep a fiber or a fabric stash there because out of sight will be out of mind and I will forget about what I have and I will lose that opportunity for inspiration of seeing things on my shelves is part of what gives me inspiration for my making. So what I did was to pull everything off the shelf and then measure what I had in terms of my fabric. I started keeping receipts and packing slips with fabric that I ordered because unlike having a yarn label, that's what I really want. I want a, I want a yarn label for my fabric. Isn't it so handy to know exactly the weight, the content, who made it, what the pattern is? You could order more if you needed it. All of those convenient things about a yarn label, I wanted that for my fabric. So I pulled it all out. I tend not to put fabric onto my shelf until it's laundered. So I felt confident that everything there had been laundered. And then I measured the width of the fabric because that's an important consideration when I'm thinking about making something. And if what I have will be enough for what I want to make. I measured the width. I measured how much yardage I have, not how much yardage I ordered, but how much I have because sometimes I've used little pieces and sometimes there is shrinkage during the laundering process. And then I wrote any other information that I happen to have about the fabric. Like if I knew the content from the packing slip, if I knew the design or the maker of the fabric, I wrote this all on some really high quality paper with a Sharpie. And then I tucked that slip into the rolled fabric and I rolled it so that it would fit on my shelf and I was starting to tie with ribbon and then I ran out of ribbon so I just tied with a really chunky yarn. I tied it up and I just slipped that piece of paper just inside the end of the roll so that I could retrieve it if I wanted to 
but they weren't going to come out or get lost over time. It's nice and secure in there. And wow, it really allowed me to tidy up my fabric stash. I also have some scrap fabric and that fabric I folded and set on the side and then I put my interfacing on the bottom of the shelf. It didn't take that long. In fact, I've probably spent that much time sitting in front of that messy, crazy shelf just trying to figure out what I had or if I had enough to do a certain pattern. I've spent that much time with my fabric many times before. (laughs) And now I can see what I have. I can see at a glance whether or not it's enough. I know the fabric content. I don't have to be going back and forth consulting packing slips. It's good. Things are good. And so I've been thinking about a next make and I'm not completely certain, but one of the things on my mind is the shirt. The It's called the dress shirt from Merchant and Mills. But to me, it's a shirt dress. It's a dress in the style of a shirt with a yoke in the front. Kind of, no, a bib, sort of a bib in the front. And Mary Beth wore hers at Rhinebeck, and I really liked the look of it. She fitted it a lot more closely than the models on the pattern. I feel like the choice they made with the styling in pattern photos for Merchant and Mills is like a way oversized look. And it looked like the model was kind of swimming in the dress, and I didn't think I liked it. But when I saw Mary Beth wearing hers, it looked infinitely more wearable. So I think that is next on my list. I also have the idea of a skirt and jacket, kind of like soft suiting. I have a skirt pattern, but still can't decide on a jacket. I have not found an independent pattern that I like yet. And I'm reluctant to use big four patterns because I don't care for the block. The quest continues. I wish you all a beautiful, wonderful week. I hope you find time for making and for friends and for some quiet contemplation. It's Thanksgiving week here in the U.S. and it's a time to really take stock in personal relationships and all the things that I'm grateful for. Acorns jumping off my Chinese house Two ducks in my spyglass Furry as a mouse It's a sweet nature A sweet nature thing It's a sweet nature A sweet nature thing It's a mighty fire It's a mighty fine, mighty fine, a mighty fine nature thing.
Thanks for listening. Music for this episode is so sweet. Music and lyrics by Samuel St. Thomas, performed by Bovine Social Club. Eat well and stay strong as you hone your post-apocalyptic skill set this week. It's a 
Thank you.